Welcome to episode 381 of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, where every week I talk about the inner workings of the entertainment industry with those who have lived it and experienced it. I'm your host, Derek Diamond. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, we are just 24 hours away from Halloween, also known as All Hallows' Eve. So I don't know if you'd call today All Hallows' Eve Eve. I know that's not really the most natural phrase or day that you could say, but we're going to call it that anyway, because technically it is the day before Halloween. And I couldn't think of a better episode to do than by bringing back the roundtable discussion. This has been asked by the listeners for a while for this format to come back, and I do really enjoy doing it. But with the run of guests that I've been having on this show, it hasn't worked out. But with the occasion and the timing, it's the perfect time to bring it back. And we're going to be discussing John Carpenter, one of the most legendary directors in the history of Hollywood. Uh, not just as a director, but as a composer, a scriptwriter, producer. His name is all over a lot of great content that has been made throughout the years. Everything from Halloween, Big Trouble in Little China, Escape from New York, The Thing, They Live... I could go on and on, and we do go on about some of the great work that uh, John Carpenter has made throughout his legendary career. And the three guests that will be joining me today are returning guests. They've all been on the show before. Jason Robbins, who is my co-host over at the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast. Chad Sanders, who is a producer for The Feature, and also The Walker, another short film that he and I have worked on uh, with our mutual friend Steve Wise. And Jeremy Branch, who has actually hosted a couple of episodes of this show back when we featured The Feature at the beginning of 2023. And I couldn't think of a better trio to join me for this discussion. And we get into you know some of our favorites, maybe some of his movies that aren't so great. And we also answer, um, I, I put out a post on social media asking people what their favorite John Carpenter film was. So we discussed that. And a lot of other stuff as well. Really, really fun time. And I couldn't think of, as I said, a better trio to join me for this really fun discussion. So hopefully you enjoy listening to it. Here is our roundtable discussion on John Carpenter. So if you're listening to this the day it comes out, it is the eve of Halloween. And I can't think of a better topic to have for this week's podcast than by discussing one of the greatest directors in the history of film, the great John Carpenter. And I couldn't think of three other people to join me for this special episode. First up, we have my co-host from the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast, Mr. Jason Robbins. How are you, sir? Doing great. How are you guys? Doing good. Excited to excited to be here. We also have, uh, you might recognize him as, uh, he filled in as uh, host for me for the, uh, the episodes we did for the feature and... I honestly thought about handing the podcast over to him. He did such a good job. <laughs> Mr. Jeremy Branch, how are you? I am doing well, Derek. I love that you introduced us as there was only three other people that you could think of <laughs> and not three better people. I see you and I uh, I will get back at you at a later point in this, in this stream. <laughs> I look forward to it. And of course, we have a producer from The Feature, also The Walker. Uh, also returning guest, Mr. Chad Sanders. Chad, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. My weekend just started. I just clocked out of work like an hour ago, so I'm ready to cast a pod about JC, man. Let's do it. I need to send you the, the Daniel Craig gif where he says, ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> it would, I would be so, feeling that right about now, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So John Carpenter, one of, in my opinion, I'm sure you guys will agree, one of the most iconic directors to ever direct, you know, also writer, composer. He's done a lot in the world of film. And uh, Jeremy, we'll start with you. What is your, do you remember the first John Carpenter film that you ever saw or when you were introduced to his work? I wore it out and I do remember what the first one was. And I don't think it's the, um, movie that most people would probably say the first John Carpenter movie I saw was blank, but I saw big trouble in little China before I'd seen, uh, escape from New York. I saw it before I saw, uh, Halloween, of course, which I actually didn't see till a little bit later, but yeah, I remember seeing big trouble in little China 
as as maybe a six or seven year old and just absolutely loving it it's this it's a weird like uh and i'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it but like this mashup of mysticism and the martial arts film and western actioners and it's just a really cool uh mashup of different genres and really like a lot of the iconography from mortal Kombat, including like raiden himself really started with this movie. So I absolutely love uh, Big Trouble in Little China and remember watching that movie just on a VHS, on repeat, over and over and over again. And still to this day, Jack Burton's just such an iconic and awesome character. I should have grabbed it, but I have a, a Jack Burton pop that I, I have uh, nice. over, I was just over about here. to go grab it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to get to that movie specifically here in a little bit but uh chad same question uh well officially the first john carpenter movie i saw was ghost of mars um nice i didn't realize it was a john carpenter movie because it was kind of just on tv in like a year or two after it was made uh it didn't really clock with me that it's john carpenter except for like at the end where it's like the iconic john carpenter font pops up early on there wasn't a lot until I got much older, and it's hard to tell because it all seems so nebulous. But, like, the first time I saw The Thing, that really just kicked me in the teeth and had a lasting impact in the sense of most things that frighten you have a lasting impact to the point where I, that was a movie, if I did revisit it, I would have to be like, uh, has it been long enough? Uh, it's only been about a year. I probably need another two years till I feel comfortable watching the thing now it's a little bit easier and i saw it when it got re-released last year in cinemas and that was really good but that escape from new york early on really get into like he's one of those great filmmakers that when you decide to get into film or to become a filmmaker and you like genre films regardless of what the genre is and you're a little bit quirky and you like weird ideas he's right up your alley like the first time someone showed me they live was a, a good a one memorable moment that's my favorite of his jason uh the first the first i remember was i saw um, we were at uh, like a family gathering at like my aunt's parent like aunt by marriage like her parents house and they had a laser disc player and us all of us kids we were in the living room watching um escape from new york on laser disc like back in the mid eighties. And I just remember loving that movie. But the biggest memory I have is we didn't have cable when I was a kid and uh, my grandparents had cable and my, and they had HBO. So my grandfather used to tape a lot of stuff off of HBO for me. And there, he had this one tape that had big trouble in little China on it. And I, I couldn't tell you how many times I watched that movie on VHS. I mean, it must have been every day for like five years, at least when I was a kid. I mean, I wore that tape to shreds and just have always loved his stuff growing up. Uh, you know, especially the 80s era uh, uh, John Carpenter. Like, the, the 90s era is kind of hit or miss, but I think his best movie is in the 90s with In the Mouth of Madness. I, I think that's his best movie. But the '80s era John Carpenter, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got it back there. Yeah, I got it back um, there. But the '80s era John Carpenter is always gonna be like just almost every single movie he made in the '80s was just a, a, a classic. Well, I think it's also fitting too because like the '80s I consider to be the best decade of film. John Carpenter is a big reason why, and you also had like Back to the Future, The Terminator. Um, you know, RoboCop, all these iconic movies that came out around that time. And uh, I was not introduced to John Carpenter until I was in college and started taking like production classes. And uh, a friend of mine, you know, that I had classes with, he was like, Hey, have you ever seen Big Trouble in Little China? And I'm like, What is that? It sounds cool though. So, <laughs> so we watched it and fell in love with that universe, even though I think. Jack Burton might be the most useless protagonist to ever be <laughs> yeah. made, but he's one of the most memorable. Him and like, if you think about it, he doesn't do anything. It's the secret really. of the movie. He, he's pointless. 
Well, it's the same with Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. If Indiana Jones wasn't there, the movie still would have happened the way it happened. <laughs> interesting. I got. I got yeah, to think. I never that. thought about I that. I got to think about that one. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll you have to go back be, and watch that again. You know what would be awesome though, and I always wished he would have done this is to not not remake Big Trouble in Little China, but make it his original vision uh, of it being a western. Like, make it again, but make it an actual Western. Keep it separate from the original movie, but it would be the same thing. It would just be set, you know, in, like, the Old West. I didn't know that was a thing. That's that's really interesting. So it was supposed to be, like, a period-accurate yeah. Western movie. Oh, man, and Kurt Russell would have been so good for that yeah. role, too. Look, I know we're all sitting here heaping praise on John Carpenter, but I feel like John Carpenter in my lifetime has been, like, most underrated, most overrated director of our day. I don't know, man. Maybe that's a super controversial take. I feel like he never aspired to be like this this highbrow, uh, like, filmmaker. Everything he's made has, has seemed like passion projects, but, like, it's all kind of cheesy. I feel like uh, all you have to do to be a master of horror is just make one good horror movie. Like people call Toby Hooper a master of horror, and that dude just fell into a good movie because nothing he's done since then has been good. Dario Argento, he had the 70s, man, but it's like the older they get, just the worse their freaking movies get. And I, I wonder, are, do we look at John Carpenter as being one of these super influential filmmakers because he made movies that hit us at the right time? Or do you think, and Derek, especially speaking to you, studying him in school, like, is he, is he revolutionary? Is it like techniques and stuff that people are looking at or like? I'm trying to parse that. I think what it is is that you look at all these different directors and they're all different. Like they have their own different styles. Like Kevin Smith is my favorite director. His style is very different than like a Spielberg or a Scorsese. I think it just depends what type of movies you're into. Like if you like, it's like Chad was saying earlier, the little bit of quirkiness because the genres of films that he's made is pretty large. Like he hasn't made yeah. just horror, but he's made, you know, like, um, uh, romance dramas, like with Starman. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I think that's one of his most underrated movies. It's yeah. more of a romantic dramedy that, that happens to have a yeah. sci-fi twist to it. I think, but oh, go ahead. I was going to say like the thing I think the most about John Carpenter is the guy knows how to set a, uh, a tone and a mood that's very consistent, not only mm. with his directing style, but he can take something that's cheesy. Like you look at the, a movie like The Fog, it's cheesy, but it's utterly rewatchable a million times because the cinematography, that's one of the best shots movies you will ever see. Like that movie, the cinematography is gorgeous. He sets the tone with that cinematography the music um, and, and the actors that he picks. And, and there's something to be said, like for, for a guy, a director like that, who has a stable of actors who constantly and consistently want to work with him on anything he does. Like look at Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell would be in every movie John Carpenter made if he would let him. Yeah. I think it's kind of, um, to touch on what Jason said, but also to piggyback off of what you were kind of getting at, Jeremy, was as a filmmaker, uh, do people drawn to it? I think lately more people have been addressing his work because of how he makes movies. It's He makes two smart decisions. He's economical, as in he knows how to come in under budget, and he knows how to get the most bang for his buck. Uh, if, he, yeah, if he made sure. a birdhouse out of five, you know, if he made a birdhouse for five bucks, that's going to be a killer birdhouse. Like, it's going to look like it's a $20 birdhouse. You won't believe it. And also just how he picks it. They're all high concept, which is great. And that's what makes them fun. They are silly. They are cheesy. Sometimes it's always, sometimes the budget influences who works on it. Uh, I revisited Prince of Darkness for this because it's been a minute. And uh, it, it was involved in a, uh, a pretty killer stash raid 
when I went to Action Movies and Games in Foley, Alabama. It's like an actual movie store that's still left standing, and they sell video games. That's cool. I got like four or five John Carpenter movies, and that was the one. And we, we watched it, and it's it was great. You know, it's done in like 90 minutes. It's, it's economical. It mostly takes place in one building. Uh, it's mostly just kind of a green tube of goo and some wet stuff and a lot of shots that are upside down, making it look like there's a puddle in the ceiling. And got done watching it, and I, and I loved it. I enjoyed it, but I also was aware of the the quirks of it, you know, uh, some of the acting is bad. Uh, just not good acting. Uh, not all of it, but some of it is. And I asked my, my girlfriend what she thought. She's like, well, it's, it's silly. And I'm like, she's absolutely correct. This is a silly movie. But I love it. Yeah, but you look at, at some of the themes that he works with in his movies, and they're themes that, that are crazy how more relevant now some of his movies are than when they came out. Like, look at They Live. Yeah, I was about to say relevant that. today than it was when it came out. It's a documentary now, apparently. That's yeah. What <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that that's actually a really good point. I agree with what y'all are saying. And when you look at Halloween, like he did kind of pioneer the use of the Steadicam that has gone on to become a a fixture in genre filmmaking since that point. So, like, there are times that I can point to and say, like, that uh, technique actually elevated an entire genre. And that's that's amazing. Um, there was a couple of... There was, like, a generation of filmmakers that include Adam Wingard, Ty West, uh, a couple of these other guys that were kind of doing, like, mumble gore uh, horror movies. The one in particular is uh, The Guest, which had... Uh, the dude that played Beast in Beauty and the Beast, uh, Dan Stevens, in it. And it is just a straight-up riff on John Carpenter. The red and blue motif, I feel like that kind of became a staple of the, uh, the uh, giallo genre, which is from the 1970s, which heavily informed what Carpenter was doing with Halloween. But I, just, I think it's interesting because I think some of his work is still underappreciated and underpraised but in that same breath, ain't nobody talking about The Ward or Ghost of Mars or any of the stuff that came later in his career that you're just like, no, that objectively I sucks. I just Ghost of Mars. Come on. I, I appreciate you bringing it up, actually. That, I'm glad you that's did. That's exactly why I said, you know, 80s era John mm -hmm. Carpenter is all the hits. 90s yeah. era, you got his basically his one best. I mean, Vampires came out in the 90s, but his one best movie was uh in the mouth of madness and then after that it was like he just gave the hell up after he was i want to hear chad talk about vampires is vampires good <laughs> no <Okay. laughs> we can free say that i didn't want to i didn't want to say that and then you guys are like you're crazy this is okay. what vampires vampires is a 90s cheese sandwich it looks of like a, a movie it should be on yes. hbo it should, looks like it should be in like an hbo movie like not quite a tv it, movie but a little bit more of a budget it's one of those movies i won't go out of my way to watch but if it's if i'm clicking through and it's on i'll watch it you know but i'm not gonna seek it out to watch you know how there are certain movies that you watch like two seconds of it and you can tell what decade it's in. Yeah. You watch the oh, movie yeah. and you're like, that is totally a yeah. 90s movie. Absolutely. That is specifically Absolutely. 1995 all over it. <laughs> if it was made in and 90s. It's really the mid 90s. They're so distinctive. Yeah. It's a weird look. It, it was post Rodriguez and uh, Quentin Tarantino doing From Dusk Till Dawn. And it felt like very much a riff on like Carpenter's going to do a cool vampire movie. I actually rewatched it the other night in preparation for this just because i'd seen it i didn't really feel very uh compelled to watch it again but i had a buddy that was like oh dude john carpenter's vampires that's the best one from the 90s but i agree with you jason it's in the mouth of madness yeah. i think that's his best 90s movie yeah it's oh it, without a doubt there's something about that movie that still it creeps me out every time i watch it that the whole like cosmic horror type of thing like that's right up my alley that type of stuff like i'm not really a blood and guts gore like i i don't like movies like saw and things like i don't i don't like you know gory movies like that but when it comes to like cosmic horror or psychological horror that's what i'm there for 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And that, what I think I like most about uh, the original Halloween film, the I'm with Jason in the sense that I don't like the gore aspect. But Halloween, when you think of like the cerebral type of horror film, just knowing that this Michael Myers character could be anywhere. And you're just thinking of that in the back of your mind. Like, is this where he's going to show up? Is this where he's going to kill his next victim? And also the thing that makes that movie just as importantly as the script and the characters is that theme song that John Carpenter wrote, because that movie would not be nearly as good if you didn't have that synthesizer type of soundtrack or that theme song. Well, me and Jeremy, when did we have this conversation where we were talking about, I think it might have been on open micers, where we were talking about how John Carpenter is the godfather of Synthwave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think that's actually uh, very valid because when we think about like just the quintessential 80s synthesizer-driven scores that so many people riff on even today, it is very rooted in what Carpenter was doing with, with Halloween, with The Fog. There were other examples of it. I think They Live. He departed a little bit with uh, The Thing, which is also a very incredible uh, score. He he paired up with uh, Ennio Mar... Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly right. And uh, just an incredible score. So, like, I think he he, he puts a lot of love and care into... into making the scores for these movies as well, which is something that a lot of filmmakers don't do, you know? That's why I say he sets the tone and the mood, and it's all, you know, 50% of it is music. Mm. It's, it's really good at being sparse because he knows, back to that thing of economics, there's not a lot of blood in that movie. There's not, because they don't have it for the budget. That's a cheap movie. I rewatched it for this. And that's the one I go back to the least to rewatch. And I forgot how much happens in it. I forgot that after the titles, after the uh, the opening scene of the POV uh, Panaglide shot that, De Palma, that Brian De Palma owes a lot of thanks to, because he uses that several times afterwards, um, it cuts to Dr. Loomis driving to the hospital for some reason, and that's how Michael escapes. You don't see anything but a couple dudes in gowns in the dark, and one on yeah. top of a car. There's, like, no blood in the murder scenes because he can't afford it. And he has that. He's able to set the tone with the music and the timing of all the shots to really intuit in the idea that Michael is supernatural, probably. They don't say anything about it. Just Dr. Loomis says he's pure evil. He's got the devil's eyes. And, but they don't have to over-explain it. They don't have to get deeply into it which so many of the sequels try to do, uh, and revamps and remakes and legacy sequels. And uh, we'll think of another term for it when they make the next one. Uh, So many different types of versions of this movie. But it's not that gory. It it is the first uh, popular slasher, we should say, because I know there's, uh, for argument's sake, other slashers before that. He kills, like, four people. Brutally, mm-hmm. with not a lot of blood. I think the only blood you see in that movie is when he slashes Lori on the arm, you know, when he's trying to cut yeah. her. And like, you know, I think that's the only blood you see in the movie. Everyone else is bruised or, like, laying weird when they show the corpses. Which is weird, because I was thinking about this, like, that scene where Lori goes up the stairs in the house and looks in the room and sees all, the, all her dead friends. Um... In a modern movie, anything in the last 20 years, they would be, like, mutilated and missing body parts, and you would need to have the dental records to really actually identify them if this was a real-life <laughs> yeah, scenario. Yeah. But really, her friends are, like, laying there and hanging upside down. And, she, and Jamie Lee Curtis just sells it so well of, like, how horrifying this is. It's, I was well, glad I revisited me, that one. I want to pose a question to you guys, all, all of you. Um, do you think that The Thing is a perfect movie? And, and the reason I ask that is because there are still so many people to this day. It, it is a cottage industry of people making YouTube videos on whether or not those two guys were The Thing at the end of that movie. Like, so many people 
make videos about that. Still just trying to figure it out to this day. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a perfect movie because to me, a perfect movie doesn't exist, but it's damn close to it. Like there are up, there are certain tier of movies that are that close. Like Ghostbusters is up there and I'd put, I'd put the thing up there when I say it's perfect. No, but it's in that, that upper tier. Yeah. I say it's up there with like Terminator too, like in that, you know, that category yeah. of really great movies that just keep you know what I feel like for decades. I feel like it's one that was more divisive on its release. It came out the same year as Spielberg did E.T. And I think people were much more <laughs> drawn to see something like that than, than something as just gory and is weird body horror as you get in the thing. And to go from talking about his restraint that we saw in Halloween versus we're going to show everything in the thing is a dramatic like uh, departure. But to Jason's point about building atmosphere, just the isolation and the paranoia and just the way that the score complements the the psychological breakdown and the distrust that these characters have with each other is it's phenomenal. The writing is so good, and I love that it doesn't leave you with that, like, definitive cut and dry, this is what it is. It, it wants you to walk out and still be questioning it yourself. And uh, for that, I, I, I think it's, it's definitely one of Carpenter's best films. It might be my favorite Carpenter movie. So uh, perfect. It, I, you know, I agree with you, Derek. I don't know that... Uh, perfection is something that's even attainable, but it is damn good. I think it's perfect for what it is and what it's trying to do. I think for the type of horror movie it's trying to be, it's perfect. For everything it does, it's perfect. If you made a John Carpenter pros and cons list, there's no cons in that yeah. movie. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, and some of the complaints we've had about his other movies, that's not happening here uh, with the thing. And it's funny, because what you said, Jeremy, it wasn't well-received upon release. It's, that's, a, that's one of the, like, the craziest things about like, film history, is how no one liked it. Usually, when you look back and you find out a movie from a popular filmmaker did not do well, and people go, how could that happen? It's usually one or the other. It's either like, well, they got the box office success, but it's not critically high. But if they don't get the box office success, they usually get the critical success. When it comes to the thing... Everybody absolutely hated that damn movie when it came out. So it's very strange to watch even 40 years later how opinions change on a movie. And uh, that's kind of, I think, helps his legacy a little bit is the changing opinion over time of his movies. A lot of it's due to the fact that, like, we grew up on this on VHS and DVDs. And so we kind of had these movies buried into our brain and, like, close to the chest. But also, it's got to account for something when he had more misses than hits. If you want to look at the numbers, he kind of did. Um, it's mostly Halloween, Escape from New York did well, Christine did good enough to let him make Starman, which did okay, Trouble banked, uh, as in tanked, sorry, and his two cheap movies, Prince of Darkness and They Live, made their money back. And They Live was number one in the box office for one week. Did he do Firestarter He also? was supposed to do Firestarter. The thing tanked so bad, they fired him. Oh, And so they were like, all right, well, we still want you to make a movie, uh, a Stephen King adaptation, because those were all the rage. I guess you can do the one about the car, because you can't mess that one up. And that one is pretty, not a lot like his stuff. It's a little bit carpentry, but not too carpentry. I think that Roger Ebert had hated uh, the thing when it first came out, but then he didn't he write a retraction like 15 or 20 years later. Uh, he wrote a whole article about how he was wrong for hating that movie. I believe he, that he's one of the few critics who would revisit things like that. So I, I believe it. Yeah, I, I don't know 100 percent, but I mean, props to him if he did. Yeah. Because I, I don't feel like any critic today would do that because no. if you're, you, you never want to admit you're wrong in, <laughs> Correct. in, in today's society. Um, what about, and I think to, to go to your point, Chad, about more misses than hits, uh, 
but I think the hits still stand the test of time so well that it takes away from the the was like you mentioned with him being an economist he was great at accentuating the positives and what he had to work with and hiding the negatives like in Halloween little to no blood because he couldn't afford it well you make up for that with great acting great cinematography and a really good script and with moments that were still still talking about it. you know when I did my top five um, horror movie moments list a few weeks ago when Jason mentioned the scene where we all think Michael's dead and then he sits up in the background is like one of the most memorable shots in any horror movie ever made. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what about some, what maybe some underrated John Carpenter movies in your guys' opinion? Like I mentioned Starman um, just because it's so different to me than anything else that he's made. Jeff Bridges did one of his best acting performances as the alien Starman, so um, Jeremy, we'll start with you. Underrated John Carpenter um, movie. So subjective, so subjective. Uh, uh, to your point, also about more hits than misses. I think we can all acknowledge, and for the listeners at home, making a movie is freaking hard. So, like having less than half of your movies uh, be not shitty is actually pretty impressive you know so uh props to anybody that can have even if they've got that one hit and the rest of their filmography doesn't come together in the way that people would have liked it to uh it can't take away from uh i mentioned toby hooper a little bit ago kind of that situation texas chainsaw massacre is so seminal that whatever he did afterwards it can't undermine that so for me, and this is definitely going to be an outside-the-pocket pick for underrated, but John Carpenter did an anthology film where he actually plays essentially like the Crypt Keeper. It's called Body Bags. It came out sometime in the maybe 1993, something like that. It's a dark, comical, uh, pretty much in the tradition of like Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Dark Side. Morality plays a uh, couple short films within it. Definitely recommend checking that one out. It's a Halloween favorite for me. I've seen Body Bags. Chad? I've seen Body Bags. That's uh, It's really interesting because it's, it's like three segments, and he directed two of them while also playing the host, which I don't think he's ever mm-hmm. done. He's never acted that much, even in his own movies. He's playing like this like yep. crazy coroner who I don't want to give away the ending where there's a Toby Hooper uh, cameo, but the, how, how they end his segments I found really funny. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't, I have a ranked list that you guys made fun of me for, but I have it. Um, and I had Prince of Darkness as my most underrated, but Jeremy's got me thinking, I don't know, man, if I want to go TV, if, we, if we're talking underrated and I want to be the cool kid at the table and say something that you haven't seen, I'm going to say Cigarette Burns, his Master of Horrors episode, because it, for TV, for early, late nineties, early two thousands TV, the quality's pretty good. Norman Reedus is fine in it. He's 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 doing a good job. He's serving the story, but it's like it's actually a story very similar to In the Mouth of Madness. So he's still in that kind of like psychological realm. Uh, it's about a movie dealer who's got to go find an old I want to say Italian film that was shown once, and the audience went insane. So it's illegal, and you can't find it. But they actually, but it gets into this conspiracy of is what was used to make the film actually evil in itself that personifies this evil and spreads it out. So, yeah, I'll say that. I'll say a cigarette. Good yeah, pick. Yeah, it's a pretty. That's that's it. Jason, uh, I mean, I'm always gonna say in the mouth of madness is a very underrated. <laughs> movie i mean just to be one of his best movies and not a lot of people have seen it but the people that do see it agree that it's a fantastic movie um another one of his 90s movies that i think is better than most of the others is uh village of the damned i i really like village of the damned i loved you know it it was one of the last movies that christopher reeve uh did before he had his accident and um, who else was in Village of the Damned? Um, oh, it had Kirstie Alley in it, and uh, what? Uh, Mark Mark Hamill's really? in it. Really? Um, what? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Um, Luke Skywalker and Rebecca. I am. Yeah. 
sleeping <laughs> on this one, apparently. But it is, uh, I, it's worth a watch. I mean, you, it may be something that you might not like the first time you watch it, but it's, it's like a lot of John Carpenter stuff. You might not like it the first time you see it, but it'll grow on you, you know, because it's got that mood. It's that got that John Carpenter mood to it. If if you like the John Carpenter moodiness, it, it's right up your alley. Yeah, I like that one too. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't seen that one. But I do have a, um, as we move on, I've got a John Carpenter trivia question for you guys. <laughs> All right. Um, I found this earlier, and I, it surprised me, but it also didn't surprise me. Um, let's Can I just say, take it away, Chad, before we even ask the question? Take it away, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's okay. let him ask the question and see what it is. I might be slinking out of here if I don't know this one. Uh, let's see. So we've made, we've named all these movies that John Carpenter has either directed, you know, he's also produced, written, score, all that stuff. There's only one movie that he has worked on that has won an Oscar. Does anyone know what that movie is? This would be so much easier if I respected the Academy for anything. Um, I know. Good point. The uh, award. Award. Can I ask what category he won the award in or would that give it away uh uh let's see it won i mean i don't think this will really give it away but um it won best live action short oh hmm. wait is it the i have a, okay i might i don't know Okay, is it the original version of uh, Dark Star, like the, the student film version, submitted as a short? That's, that's what I thought, too. But, um, but no, that's not it. That's a good guess. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if you guys have even I heard of it. I don't know short films, uh-uh. It's called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. <laughs> I've heard of it's it. It's a movie that he edited in 1969. Oh, okay. Really? He edited, co-wrote, and composed the score. Oh. Well, wow. Wow. Where can you see this? Jeff, I have no idea. I need to, we need to look on Just Watch to see if we can find it. But the only other thing of his that was nominated... So John Carpenter was never nominated for Best Director for anything that he worked on. Jeff Bridges was nominated for Best Actor for Starman. Oh, nice. But... I didn't that's, know that. That's it. So, like, you I, I got to echo what Chad said. <laughs> uh, I I wonder how they choose what wins and what doesn't. A lot of it's um. <sighs> let's do another podcast about that. Let's not even get into. It. Yeah, I mean that could that could <laughs> let be. Me, let me get it. That could be its whole. Let me thing. let me let's 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 spend another time preparing for that one because we're going to need some time to prepare. Yeah, we can sure. do it around Oscar season, Derek. That'll be fun. Oh, that's a good idea. Save the date. Okay, okay so uh, we actually had quite a few submissions for um, favorite John Carpenter films. Um, I put a post out on social media asking people for their favorite John Carpenter films. So uh, you guys up for me reading these off and get your guys' thoughts on them? Sure. Oh, yeah. All right, first up we have Brad Blanchard, who is a local filmmaker here in the Pensacola area. He said Body Bags is his favorite. Love to hear it, uh, Brad. I said Blad Branchard, and I apologize about that. I mixed our names up, but good, good choice there, buddy. That could be uh, Brad's cousin. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> our mutual friend Steve Wise says the thing. Heard of him. Va- <laughs> vaguely know who he is. Wait, you heard of the thing or you've heard of Steve? <laughs> I heard of Steve Wise. <laughs> yeah, the name sounds vaguely familiar. I don't want twice. <laughs> Uh, Samantha Diamond says Halloween and puts a little pumpkin emoji after it. Nice. Uh, Daniel Lackey. Very appropriate, too. Exactly. Daniel Lackey, The Thing. Adam Nelson, In the Mouth of Madness. And I'm still mad nice. that there hasn't been a decent Region 2 physical release. Ke- yeah. Kevin DeNovis, Escape from New York. Good pick. Michelle Ortiz-Meguez, Escape from New York, 
The Thing, and Halloween my girl. in that order. That's, nice. that's my girl right there. She's a buddy. Hey, Michelle. Uh, Colton Sims says people sleep on John's vampires. Uh, yeah, disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe nobody picked Escape from L.A. That... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was one of those late at night came on TV. I have no idea what this is movie. I saw that before I saw Escape from New York, and that is that in, right? I, that might have been what did it because the idea is amazing. It looks like garbage from the CGI, but the idea how? is amazing, and that's still a great ending, even though not a good how movie. How did they get away? How did he get away with making that movie? Because it's literally just Escape from New York. Kurt Russell. It's the same movie. Kurt Russell made it happen. Yeah, it is. Kurt Russell's like, this is what we're doing. That's it. Uh, so everyone uh, said yes took, to Kurt. It's like he took the original script for uh, Escape from New York, and he just scratched out New York and wrote L.A. And that's all. <laughs> what is it? Control H or whatever and just swapped out? <laughs> Skim oh, through, that, replace any New York reference with, with <laughs> L.A. And even, even for the time, the CGI is bad. I mean, it is like some like PS1 level graphics type of CGI. It's yeah. horrible. I can't imagine watching that movie in HD now, like if it came on TV. It's bad. Because I, I watched, I think it was the first Harry Potter on on TV and seeing all the CGI in high def, I'm like, oof. That's, mm -hmm. that's a little rough. It's, so I can't imagine how Escape from L.A. A is. A good 30% of that movie is like watching an episode of Reboot. Like, just like the 90s <laughs> 3D. Because it's just like, oh, yeah. the glass is breaking. I'm like, you mean that triangle that's shaped gray? Yeah. The shards of glass? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, three more here. We've got Brandon Rutledge, who is a listener over at the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast. He says they live. Love that one. Raven Ghostpaw, Big Trouble in Little China. Nice. And uh, this last one's for Jason, but um, Carlos Longoria, who's a listener of uh, Nerd Cave Retro, but we like to call him I Am the Rampage. Rampage. He says, El Diablo, this movie is one that I have a lot of nostalgia for. My dad was really into westerns, and this is a fun movie in general. I didn't watch much horror when I was young, so this was the first Carpenter movie I saw, and I am only just now realizing it. I don't and remember he, this old movie. Thing. And he throws no. in the quote, you shot him in the back, his back was to me. That's a, that's that's a good bad. one. That's very Doc Holliday yeah. from Tombstone. Okay, I got, a <laughs> new, uh, I got a new John Carpenter movie to go watch now. Well, here's yeah, right. El here's Diablo. John never made that. That's the script he's been trying to get made for 50 years and never worked out. So that's... Really? Yeah, that was too cute. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, um... Uh, that's great. great. Great picks from all of the listeners. That was uh, that was really cool that everybody kind of weighed in and, and, and shared their thoughts on these, uh, except for the gentleman that said vampires. Uh, shame. <laughs> shame to you. Shame to you, sir. For shame. <laughs> so, i'm only kidding thank you for the thank you for the selections yeah absolutely always appreciate people sending in their list favorite movies least favorite movies whatever you know i ask them to send always appreciate it and, and everybody out there if you're going to check out john carpenter stuff and, and you've never really seen any of his stuff even people that like john carpenter don't sleep on assault on precinct 13 either that's killer that's yeah, a good thing. 70s crime drama you know it's not horror but it's definitely uh it's a thriller definitely worth yeah it's a thriller I i'm surprised guess. that just now came up i know I mm -hmm. think about that like because you think about horror when you think John Carpenter, it's hard to think of all like his other stuff that's not horror, you know. It's it's right. It's funny how he's like known as the master of horror, and he's done the master of horror. And Jeremy, you mentioned how much Big Trouble is all a mashup of these different fantastic genres. I love John Carpenter for the sci-fi aspect of it. I love for the weird things he comes out with, which is amazing because all he does is make weapons. Let's be honest, they're all weapons. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> So as we start to wrap up, I wanted to to ask you guys this. And again, Jeremy, we'll start with you. What is the legacy of John Carpenter? 
Yeah, um, I, Chad touched on it a little bit ago, and I've and Jason, you've alluded to it as well. Everybody kind of has keyed in on the fact that we grew up with access to these films, whether they were on late night television, whether we had uh, copied VHS versions of them that we just watched time and time again. When it becomes such a part of our uh, our DNA, like who we are as film fans. I mean, collectively, all of us love movies. And at some point or another, we all came across some of these films, some, if not all of these films. And you can see the way his legacy is already being carried over into these days. And I, I kind of joked and said, most underrated to most overrated, but he really is having a a reevaluation over the past five, maybe 10 years at this point where people that are actively making films, guys from their, uh, you know, thirties to forties that are actually out there doing the thing now. And you can see John, uh, Carpenter's imprint all over that. Plus, as we said, he's one of these filmmakers that does the writing, the editing, the scoring, and who else does that? You got Robert Rodriguez. There's, there's filmmakers that have kind of like picked up the baton for him and and ran with it and we're kind of reaping the rewards of that with movies like I mentioned The Guest with um hell there's other great examples that I'm not able to pull right now but I just think that we're going to see his influence carry on for it, another generation and then maybe it'll skip a generation and then it'll come back around but I think that people are not going to forget uh the iconic sound and the iconic style of John Carpenter and his work. Chad? Oh, the legacy of John Carpenter. That's that's easy. Um, a lot of imitators for a very long time, and very few who are good. And that's kind of how you know someone's good at their job. The fact that we're all kind of obsessing over him. All he did recently, all he's been doing for 10 years, is putting his names on things that as a producer that they've remade and sometimes doing a score and anytime he does any interview we're excited to see him speak uh it's uh, on the night we're recording this he's going to be on colbert uh talking about his tv show oh nice uh which is cool i'll definitely watch that tomorrow on youtube uh but i think really over time what will stand out is just his originality even if we're like, this is cheesy, this is silly, this has been done before, this is that, this is a take on this, this is a riff on that. It's still all uniquely John Carpenter, and that's what makes it great. Uh, only he could have made his movies the way he did. And I'm pretty happy to like exist at a time that I could see these. Even though some are silly, some are a little bit too much. Um... There are a few filmmakers that I will like obsessively talk about because there's few filmmakers who have that kind of run of movies. And with that being said, do you guys want to hear my my ranking list or do we want Jason to go? And I can do it later. Um, let's let Jason go and then we'll come back to cool. your list. Uh, for John Carpenter's legacy, there there are very few directors uh, over the course of cinematic history to where you can see and hear you know, five seconds of a movie and know exactly who made that movie. John Carpenter is one of those people. And I also think he is too far ahead of his time because his movies weren't appreciated when they came out. They were hated when they came out. They flopped, but they gained notoriety later on. And that's also a testament to a, a guy who made as many movies as he did and sh and was thrown in you know Hollywood jail so many times, but he always stuck to his vision for the way he wanted to do things, the stories he wanted to tell, and like Chad said, even if it was cheesy, he did it his way, and he may you know he's obviously a millionaire, multimillionaire just off of Halloween alone because he kept like what ten percent or twenty percent of the gross, like that's the best move he could have ever made because that that movie cost what 
$200,000 to make, and it made like $50 million in the theater. So he's been making money off that movie. He doesn't need to do anything, but he still has made a ton of movies. They're all pretty much enjoyable at some level. Some are way up here. Some are, you know, like drive-in level trash, but they all have their something special about them. And I think like, like Jeremy said, like it's going to be, he's going to be one of those directors that, you know, is going to keep coming back, you know, with every generation of filmmakers that come along and discover him and be like, man, this dude was, he was the total package, man. Director, writer, editor, uh, you know, uh, he could score. I mean, he could do everything and he always did it under budget <laughs> always. Yeah. And I, I think to piggyback off that real quick, I'll say that there are very few filmmakers to me that like Jason said, you can watch a movie and know almost immediately who he is. I think he personifies a type of filmmaker that if you want to set out and do things your way, if you have a specific vision, a specific style, I think John Carpenter's career and what he's done is a pretty good model to follow yourself after. Are you going to duplicate what John Carpenter has done? No, but you can take elements of how he's handled himself through his career. And I don't think you'll be doing too bad. Mm -hmm. So, Chad, would you like to go over your list? Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's it's a ranked list, but not in like one to two, one to ten. It's more like a list of category to its its counterpart. So, <laughs> great. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's his best movie. Let's start at the top. To me, his best movie. It's all conjecture. It's all my opinion. Uh, best movie is the thing. That's the best one. If we're just talking perfect, um, not my favorite. I think there's a difference between a favorite movie and the best movie. If you want to say the best movie of all time is The Godfather or Citizen Kane or Vertigo or something, great. But is that going to be my favorite movie? No, my favorite movie is like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, stuff I grew up with when I was a kid. So that's kind of where I'm coming out with that. Um, I think his most successful is probably Halloween, especially with what Jason said, where he got a cut of the gross and has been having that for the last 45 years. Yeah, he's doing all right. Um, I think the most beloved is Escape from New York. I think pretty universally a lot of people have seen that, you know, to the point where it's ripped off from video games. I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, the wild card slash dark horse, uh, however you want to see it, um, to me is in the mouth of madness. To the first time I, a friend showed that to me, and they're like, this is 90s Carpenter, which you don't hear a lot. And it's this crazy idea. And it's just like... It's different than what he's done before, but there's also, it's a little bit, there's also like some cheap tricks in it. The thing that's, did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? And then there's just a filter over the screen and Sam Neill's losing it. That is like the cheapest bit in a movie that I love. And the rest of, it's, it's good, stuff. good stuff. And the rest of the movie like looks so good and it's just so great. I think it's also got his best acting in it. The scenes yeah. between Sam Neill and Charles Maston are perfect. Dude, so I tell you, even to this day, when I'm driving down like a country road at night when it's dark, I'm expecting to see, you know, a guy on a bicycle going by going, he won't let me out. Here, he won't let me yeah. out. Hear, hear the clicky clacky. The clicky clacky. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. Um, my most underrated, I was going to say Prince of Darkness, but like from what we said earlier, I think Cigarette Burns is pretty underrated and not known because you kind of have to have. They didn't really release the Master of Horror series a lot. I think it was on Showtime, I believe. So unless you have it on DVD or an old Showtime subscription or like so many weird movies now, things are on Tubi, which is really that's a, yeah, that's right? a whole conversation in itself, talking about how Tubi. Tubi kind of reminds me of Netflix 10 years ago, how it just has like the cool weird stuff that you didn't know you needed to watch. Um, so Dude. Let me give you guys a recommendation real quick because of that. On Tubi, mm -hmm. there's this movie called Extraterrestrial that came out in like 2015. Go see it. Okay. Go watch it. It's I'll awesome. It I'll watch it this weekend. Um, and then yeah. last on my list, my favorite movie will always be They Live. It will always be it. 
I was going to ask. I didn't know you were going to put the favorite on there. I was had that in my back pocket. I totally, man, I don't know if I, the thing is so good also, but They Live is just, it's, it's a, a cool movie. It's so it's cool. It's just a cool movie. It's the coolest yeah, idea. Cool it takes its time. <laughs> that fight is insane. And it's insane. And, it, and Steve makes a point. I've, I've talked to Steve Weisel about this a few times. He says it derails the movie a little bit, and it kind of does. But then it just kicks back into the gear so fast. And when they reveal what really happens, it gets the hell out of there and has like a pretty insane nihilistic ending um, to where it's almost like a joke. Uh, and, yeah. and that's kind of informed my personality since then. So there we are. Yeah, That movie is yeah. a, a master class on score, scoring a movie, yeah. and what you can do with three notes. It's just the blues. He's just playing blues, but with like that yeah. 80 yeah. synth sound, so you, he sneaks blues in. It's, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's different than like a lot of these like faders and other things he's got going on with like, oh, you know, like the Fox theme, which is like good and sparse and a little more complicated, but like, yeah, it's just like, and a harmonica. Too on they live that's that and uh-huh. the harmonic sounds a little bluesy but it also sounds like uh charlie bronson and like once upon a time in in the west because like carpenter at the end of the day he makes westerns yeah yep i think you nailed it that's he makes uh, his, all of his movies could easily be westerns yeah. well, snake pliskin's a cowboy jack burton's a cowboy yeah. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah they did re- they did make the thing as a western Oh, they try to, and it's called the Hateful Eight. Like that's that's oh, a I knew huge, you were say that. and it's not even like a hot take. Like Tarantino screened it for the crew and cast with Kurt Russell sitting up front while they made that movie. That was a big influence on that movie. Ah, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. Uh, last thing before we get out of here, uh, Jeremy, anything you want to plug, like social media for the uh, viewers and listeners to follow you? Check out Lucid Memory on YouTube. Uh, if you want to hear some 80s, early 90s inspired synthwave music, uh, get a little bit of that Carpenter nostalgia, check out Lucid Memory. Chad? Um, when's the next time the feature's playing somewhere? You know more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's playing in Pittsburgh this That's weekend. Cool. Um, other than that, yeah. I'm not sure. Well, we're working on it. I'm so if you're, if you're local, like follow us on social media for the feature. Because it, it plays in different towns now. I don't even know which one all of them play at. Uh, hopefully we'll get some more local showings uh, this year. And uh, we're still working on The Walker, which is going to be really exciting when that gets done. So keep an eye out for that. Jason? Well, you can go listen to me and Mr. Derek Diamond every single week talk about retro games over at Nerd Cave Retro. Uh, you can go to nerdcaveretro.com. That, that's the link tree that will take you everywhere you need to go. And also... Only fans? Yeah. We... All right. Coming excellent, soon. Excellent. <laughs> and also my uh, other podcast, Open Micers Podcast, where me and my comedian buddy, Mr. Jacob Craig, every single week we talk to comedians around the country about uh, what it's like being uh, working comedians and all that kind of stuff, cool stuff. So go check us out at Open Micers on Twitter and Instagram. Only fans coming soon for Open Micers. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, guys thank you so much for taking the time to have this chat this was awesome yeah yeah thanks Thanks for having having me thank you once again to jason jeremy and chad for that fantastic discussion always great bringing back the roundtable discussions we'll definitely be doing another one in the near future what the subject will be and who will be joining me i have no idea but it's always fun you know no matter who is a part of the podcast so uh, be sure to stay tuned for that um, in the coming weeks but for next week's episode We're going to touch on a subject that has rarely been talked about on this podcast, but it actually does pertain to one of my favorite video game franchises of all time. I'm going to be chatting with Johnny Gioelli, who is the lead singer of the band Crush 40, and you may know them as the ones who have done most of the vocal tracks for the modern Sonic the Hedgehog games. Some that I really enjoy listening to, still listen to to this day, Can't wait to chat with Johnny. That'll be on next week's episode. And he's actually going to be appearing 
at a Sonic Fan Expo that's going to be held uh, in Texas in a couple of weeks. So we'll be talking about that as well. If you want to subscribe to the show, if you want to follow me on social media, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just head over to linktree.com slash Podcast. Everything Derek Diamond Experience related is in one location. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews the show gets, the more visible it is to those that are searching for podcasts. I know I say it every week at the end of the show, but it is really important. It helps out a lot, and it only takes a minute of your time, and it doesn't cost anything, which is fantastic. So whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcast app of choice is, if you could just head over to uh, the link of the show and rate and review it, I would very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you once again to Jason, Chad, and Jeremy, and we'll see you guys back here next Monday for another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. Yeah.